Good morning, everybody. You guys sounded good this morning. <clears throat> Not as good as you did last week, but just kidding. <laughs> Wasn't it a special time last week? Such a blessing. I've always loved Easter. I've mentioned that many times before, but uh, of course we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday anyway, uh, but uh, it's just such a special time as we gather together like we did last week. And your singing was amazing, and I think you're trying out for some music group or something like that. I'm not, I'm not sure what's happening, but anyway, we're blessed to have you here today. Those of you who are watching online, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us as well. Always, uh, your presence is invaluable, so thank you for joining with us today. All right, well, as much as we had such a wonderful celebration last week, we've got just as much in store for us this morning. A little technical, a little interesting information, but I think we're going to see the wonderful work of the Lord again which is what he wants for us to do. Okay, So before we pray here, let me make a, just a, two announcements. One is our youth will be gathering again tonight uh, at 6 p.m. And uh, you guys are gathering again, right? At 7 p.m. the adults are gathering to watch The Chosen downstairs at 7 again tonight. So we're back on schedule with that. And then uh, if you didn't get the email that uh, Brother Neil had done as our church treasurer about our giving, uh, really not about the giving per se itself, but you know the mail has been pretty slow these days. And uh, we finally received several checks that you all mailed a long time ago. And uh, so it's just the world we're living in right now. And so the idea is that if you can either bring the money with you, that'd be wonderful. Uh, you can give online if you'll do that. Or you can um, bring it by during the week at some point or have somebody bring it for you. If any of those work, great. Certainly there is mail, but we're just trying to eliminate that if we can for your sake. Because some of you are wondering, where is my check gone? And then for our sake as well, okay? So um, if we could just work together on that, that would be, be great. If you didn't get that email from Neil, let us know and we'll make sure that you get it, okay? All right. Well, let's pray and uh, we'll look into the text this morning. Father, it's uh, always, always, always a blessing to gather in your name. And we thank you for the freedom of doing that. We're, we're watching across our world even more steadily now. Uh, seeing things changing when it comes to religious freedom. And so, Lord, we thank you and don't want to ever uh, dismiss one thought about how grateful we are uh, to you for allowing us the privilege of meeting. And so, Lord, uh, this morning is nonetheless true. We pray that you would open our hearts as much as we celebrated and rejoiced over the resurrection of Christ last week. We celebrate your resurrection again today and uh, pray that you would open our hearts that we may really hear what it is that you want us to hear. Lord, may we never assume that just because we have lived life a certain way or we've been a part of the church or anything uh, that uh, we are safe with you. May we never assume that there's one person more valuable to you than another. Lord, what you're looking for is an open and a willing heart. And so may our hearts be open to you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you please stand with me now as we're back in Matthew's Gospel and we're going to finish up uh, where we left off in part one of the merciful healing power of Jesus. We're going to pick up in verse five and we're going to read down through verse 15 today, okay? And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. 
And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. And when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. All right, amen. You may be seated. Now, just to kind of get to get your minds wrapped around where we have been, you, if you've been following along with us over this length of time that we've been studying Matthew's gospel so far, you remember that Matthew is focusing on one particular aspect. Now, he covers a lot, but one focus is what Matthew is doing throughout the gospel, and that is to prove Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he's doing. So hold that in your minds, okay? He is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The other gospel writers, which we'll see in just a minute, uh, prove Jesus to be the Messiah also, but yet a little different aspect of him, the servanthood of Jesus, the deity of Jesus himself, um, uh, and, and, and so forth. And so Matthew, though, particularly writing to a Jewish audience, is clarifying that this coming Christ, or the Christ who has come, is the Messiah. Okay? So now to do that, as we've seen from the beginning, he has proven his Messiahship through his genealogy. That was number one. Through his virgin birth, through his father's, the father's testimony, if you will, at his baptism. If you remember, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased as the dove descended upon him or the spirit came down upon Jesus. And then we saw Jesus' ability to resist the temptation by Satan in the wilderness. And we studied through that. We spent quite a bit of time in those chapters on the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus teaching with great authority. That's how it ended. He taught as one with authority, not like anybody else. And that was purposeful because God wanted to prove to us through Matthew's writing that this is the Messiah. Now, if you're a Jewish person, you're wanting to listen to this because this would be very, very important news for you as you have been waiting for the Messiah to come. And that's what the Jews are waiting for today. They're still waiting for the Messiah. But we have proof in our hands and factual evidence that the Messiah certainly has already come and will come again a second time. Now, you remember also the last thing we looked at as we began chapter 8 is another proof of the Messiahship of Jesus, and that is his ability to heal. His ability to heal, his wonderful ability to heal. And you remember that as we began talking about his ability to do just that, we went backwards and we talked about the day in which Jesus lived, which was specifically with very little medical help. We're very blessed in our culture, aren't we, to have the kind of medical help that we do. And none of us particularly like to go have the medical help, but we're thankful that we have doctors and nurses. And if you're here in the room and that's one of you, thank the Lord for you. Thank the Lord for what we have. But in Jesus' day, medical help was not very available. In fact, many people suffered greatly from all kinds of things, just like we're reading about here in this particular account. And as a result of that, people were left to themselves. If they had no money, they had no means, they had no family, they had to take care of all of their situations on their own. And often what would happen is it would cause them to be homeless. 
They would be left out in the streets making life much more difficult. And you know, as much as money would be more challenging to come by, families would do what they could, but often they were limited in their help of one another because they didn't have the necessary means to do what they needed. As I thought about some of this, my mind couldn't help but go back to the countries that are struggling in the same way today. Uh, My wife and I have, as many of you, have taken trips to other lands, other countries, and uh, specifically we've been to Romania numerous times, as you know that. And I remember one particular instance when my wife and I were part of a team. We were actually taken by the church that had started a ministry to uh, people who had uh, cancer because there was no, and there still is to my knowledge, no uh, help uh, for cancer in that way. There is medical help, certainly, but no extra help like a hospice care, that kind of thing. And so my wife and I were taken to a family. It was a gypsy family, and uh, we went into their home. The floor was dirt, and the dimensions were probably very, very similar to the stage size here. And uh, it was dark. Uh, There was one little cook stove in the side. There was one bed. Uh, There was a sink of sorts, not running water, of course, but just a basin. Uh, It was dirty, as you can imagine. And there were 10 people living in that room. 10 people. It was a husband and wife, and the rest were their children. One of the children had uh, cancer, and he was having some real issues with his leg. In fact, that's where the cancer was, and it had numerous surgeries. And I just remember leaving that place and saying, Thank you, Lord. Uh, for what we have, and and feeling very sorrowful for those people. Uh, But that was normal. It was just life every day, and the children were out. Uh, We would never think of this, but I remember right outside the house, literally there was like an earthen pit that was covered over with metal that uh, would be put on a roof, and the kids were climbing in and out of the hole with these metal pieces, and and, you know we were (sighs) kind of like this, and it's like, no big deal. You know, this is what we do. And uh, so life was very different. I remember one time also on another trip, not to Romania, I'll talk about that in a second, but going to the Philippines. I was with our June Rodrigo, as you remember. He, we support them in the ministry. And uh, we went to a hospital, and uh, it was very dark. Uh, there was very little lighting. Uh, it was hot and uh, not much care. In fact, when you go into the hospital, in most countries like those, uh, it's up to the family to provide for one another. Like, there's no person coming by with a cart, here's your meal. There's nobody coming by taking your order for what you want for lunch. And do you want pudding or do you want Coke or do you want tea or something like that? No, it's basically whatever the family can muster up to bring to you. And they're the ones who have to go get the medicines for you. There's no medicines distributed in the hospital. If there's a prescription made, you have to go to the pharmacy and you have to pick it up, which is another block or a couple blocks away, and you have to figure out how to pay for it. And that's how people live. And uh, it's a very, very challenging situation. Again, unlike our nation, uh, we're blessed to have an emergency room right across the highway, almost literally. I could almost walk there. We have hospitals uh, there. There are no emergency rooms uh, per se. Some places have something like that, depending on where you're going or where you are. Uh, There are some hospitals. There are some, uh, but basically no elderly care facilities like what we're blessed with for people when they come to that place in life where they just need extra help. Uh, there's nothing like that in some of these places. There's no organizations to feed or care for the physical needs of the infirmed. I mean, there's just nothing like that. I remember as we've gone to Romania, you've heard if you've heard about those trips, um, the other part of the trip is going to the abandoned elderly home. And that's a, a guy and his wife who are believers 
who saw a, a, a man laying on the street, if I remember the story right, who had frozen to death because he had no place to go. There was just no shelter at all. And so he said to his wife, hey, we have an extra bedroom. We could take somebody in. Now, we didn't get to go this last year, but the year prior to that, we were told that they have housed over 700 homeless people now. And God has just provided in a miraculous and amazing way. And he'll tell you, it's just amazing how God does. In fact, so much so are they helping the, the culture that the government now is sending people to them literally bringing them by ambulance and dropping them off in the street saying, we don't have anywhere for them to go. They were on the street here. Take care of them. But they don't receive any government assistance. They don't want to. This is the facility uh, because they don't want to be controlled in any way by the government. That's another story. Uh, But just understand that it is very different in other parts of the world. And it was just like that and worse in Jesus' day. You also know that there would be no orphanages no social services, no foster care for children uh, to care for those kids who have been left on their own. And again, it just goes on and on and on. I think you get the picture. Now, the Lord was clear, again, if you remember all of this from last time, that it was not a result, or it being the suffering of the people, was not a result of the sinfulness of those individuals. And I gave this illustration that the Lord gives in Luke chapter 13 as the disciples were asking Jesus what was the reason why these people are like this. Because the mindset was there must have been something sinful that they've done and God is punishing them. And Jesus made it very clear in Luke's gospel. In fact, this is just one place when he talked about the 18 people, that's all we really know about this, that died as a result of a tower falling. Jesus points this out to the disciples and said, what do you think about them? It wasn't because of their sin, but then he turns it around and he says, listen, that's not what you need to be concerned about. What you need to be concerned about is the fact that we are all, or you all are all sinners. Let me put that carefully. Jesus was not. But all humanity is sinful, and what you really need to be concerned about is where your soul's going to be. That's what you need to, need to be really watching out. That's the real issue. And that there is a coming judgment. And Jesus made that very clear in John chapter 3, verse 17. But he said, excuse me, in verse 17, uh, verse, yeah, verse 17 of chapter 3, that he had come to rescue people from that coming judgment. Now we often know and memorize John 3:16, right? For God so loved the world, you know that verse. But we fail to remember verse 17, that not only did God love, but he came to rescue. In fact, listen to verse 17. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Well, what's he, what are we being saved from? what Jesus just spoken in Luke 13. There is coming a time where every soul will be judged. And Jesus is warning the people of his day as he's warning us now that we need to be cautious of our own hearts and be prepared for that day that's coming. But I have come to rescue you. So we're living in a day where the Lord has come to give us the opportunity to be saved out of the judgment that God will certainly bring on every soul. And one of the ways Jesus was showing himself to be God and the restorer of life was that he came to heal. And he did that. He physically healed people and did many other things because only God can do that, right? It is only God who can heal. And so his ministry was proving that he is God so that people would open their hearts so he could rescue them before the judgment day will come. 
Now, what we're studying at this particular point in the midst of all of that is this little section where we start seeing the miracles that Jesus does in healing people. Now, last time we saw the healing of this pitiful man, the leprous man, and we went into great details with that, some of which made you nauseated as we talked about leprosy. So I'm not going to talk about that again. What we want to do is finish these two other miracles that Jesus did, but predominantly spend our time on the second one, which is this story of this very powerful man, which is what we just read, and then this passed over person. I've titled these this way, these little subtitles, so that you can see Jesus' heart in the matter. First, we have a very pitiful man that the world had totally abandoned, the leprous man. Now we encounter a very powerful man, just the opposite, almost in opposite extremes of the the continuum here. And then we have this very forgotten person or passed over in society. And you'll see that as we get to that. All three of these representing very different types of people. But that's the point. The Lord has come to rescue all people who will turn their hearts over to him. And I hope you hear that this morning. That you're paying attention and you're listening to God is not just giving us details about the text, but he's telling us, no matter who the person is, I have come to rescue them if they will open their heart to me. God is not a respecter of persons as you and I are. We're pretty good about that, but God is not. Okay, so let's look at this person we just read about, a powerful person. So Matthew tells us now, as we're looking at the text, that Jesus made his way to to Capernaum. Now, if you remember, Capernaum's up in the north of Israel. And so Jesus says after his baptism, he hears about John the Baptist's arrest. And that was his green light, prophetically, if you will, to make his way up into the north. And so he comes to Capernaum, we're told by Matthew. And he encounters a Roman officer, a centurion, we are told. Now, he is a centurion because the name means 100 or something of that nature, And that means that he was an officer in the Roman army, meaning he was over a hundred men, a hundred soldiers. Now, to be very specific, usually the centurion only had about 60 to 80 men somewhere in there because good men as soldiers were hard to come by. Now, you may be thinking the the reason why in your own mind, and that could be correct because it was a very difficult life to live, and it was. Let me give you some of those illustrations to help you understand why it was such a challenging life and why it made it so difficult for them to find qualified men. Number one, a Roman soldier was required to serve most of their life as a soldier. Now, that would be 20 years. Life expectancy as a soldier was not that long, but 20 years would be a long time. Now, that's not unlike our uh, soldiers today. Many of you have served and you understand that, that that's the normal time frame if you want to hit retirement. Well, that wasn't the case with these guys. They had to serve 20 years. It was required, maybe a few more, maybe a few less, if, depending on who they were serving under, but that was basically the scheme. And there were very strict requirements on them during those 20 years, such as young men. Imagine this. You were not allowed to marry. Okay. Forget your passions, throw them out the window, stop looking at that girl because you can't have her. You are a soldier under Caesar and you will serve the Roman guard. And again, you can imagine that that would be very, very challenging for them. Here's a man in his prime, he's feeling the effects of his natural tendencies and he would certainly want to marry, but he couldn't. Now, as people often do, 
we have this way of finding our way around the law, right? We can skirt the law. People do that in their sinfulness, and it was no different in the Roman guard. And so what they would do, we're told historically, is that they would often take concubines to themselves, okay, illegally. They weren't allowed to have a concubine. You say, what's a concubine? That's a funny word. Well, it really means a woman who was considered of lesser value, more like property than anything else, who was not a wife, but was a woman nonetheless that could fulfill the obligations that the soldier would want and have of his own life, as you can imagine. Now, there were some good things that came from the concubine, or to the concubine as a result of it. And we're going to see one of those, I believe, and I'll give my opinion in that, not from the text, but my opinion. Uh, but we also have to believe that a soldier who would take this woman would really create a better life for her because as a centurion, he would be paid more. And so he could provide more for his servants. And this woman perhaps would have a better life. So that's some speculation in that as well. Again, now, nonetheless, they did all of this, even though it was an illegal thing. And so we could pretty much say the same thing as we have in our culture. It became a don't ask, don't tell policy. If you don't bring it up, it's okay. I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's what our culture does. And that's what the culture did in the Roman time. Okay, so that was one issue. You had to serve for all these years and you could not marry. Now, to further understand the life of the soldier, and I really wanted us to do this because my mind was inquisitive about this because we only have a few verses here and it seems to be a wonderful story, but we really don't know the depth of what's really happening. And I think it's necessary to go into this so we can see what's really happening in the hearts of these people to feel the full impact of what Jesus had done. So to understand further, we need to know that the centurion would most likely have been a Gentile. Now, a Gentile is just another name for a non-Jew. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. And so they wouldn't have been of the Jewish heritage, which is an important point. I'll get to that more in a minute. He probably was a man from that particular region in which he was serving. That was customary for the Romans. They would take a man, a young man of that order, of of that community, and they would cause him to serve in that particular way. And you say, well, why would that be? Well, again, speculation is, but I think this is accurate. It would be a way to humiliate not only the soldier a little bit, but also to keep him humble, but also to humiliate the people and to control them even more. You say, well, how would it control them? Well, because the Romans knew that that enlisted man would know the area, number one. That would make him a good soldier. He would already know the region. He would know the people, which would make him more capable of dealing with the people. But it would also make him, on Rome's part, an enemy. And that's what you want if you're a soldier. If you're going to get people in their thinking to listen to you and obey you, then you have to be their enemy. You cannot be their friend. You have to be a traitor, which would create a greater hatred between the people that they're uh, serving over and the people that are under them. Again, which in the Roman thinking would make him a better soldier, more willing to do his duty without pity or remorse. After all, you're already hated by the people, so what is it to you as a soldier if Caesar enacts some law that you're to inflict upon the people and you just do it because they already hate you anyway? And this is the case that we saw with Matthew. If you've been watching the Chosen series or you just know from biblical study, Matthew was actually a Jew who had become a contractor, if you will, or a worker for the Romans who would be kind of the middle guy between the Roman government and the people. 
The people were required to have, have pay heavy taxes, and so Matthew became the middle guy as a tax collector. They would pay their taxes to Matthew, but Matthew of his own self would take as a tax collector some of that money and he would enforce more of the giving to him. He would keep the, over, the, the part over that and give what Rome required of them. And so the people hated tax collectors. It was the same kind of idea here with the centurion, making them doubly hated uh, in that sense. Now, going back just for a second, I told you a moment ago that Matthew tells us, and this you've got to put your thinking hat on here a little bit. I'm going to show you something that's going to bring more clarity to the story that I think will help us understand better the heart of the centurion. Matthew tells us that the centurion came to Jesus. And if you look at, the God, at the, in our text today, you'll see that. But Luke, in his account, in my opinion, makes it clearer as to what actually happened. Not that Matthew is wrong, and I'll make a comment about that in a minute, but this is clearer in my mind from Luke. The centurion, Luke says, didn't come himself. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7 for a second in verse 2. The centurion uh, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. Okay, so then Luke says the same thing. He has a slave, he's very sick, he's about to die. Matthew is saying the same thing. Verse 3, though, when he heard, that's the centurion about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Okay, now we have to stop right there because some people are going to say, aha, you see there's discrepancies in the text. What's going on here? Well, a couple thoughts. One is there could be a timing situation here. They're not incorrect, but there could be a timing situation for Matthew to say the centurion went... But Luke say that he sent a delegation of elders would really be the same thing from a person in authority. In fact, we're going to see this in just a minute in Matthew's writings. A person in authority like the centurion could easily say, hey, go do this for me, and they would go, and it would be the same thing as the centurion going himself. That would be the authoritative kind of thing. Okay, So that's one possibility. It could be that someone said to me this morning, I think what happened, and this is again speculation, but it's possible that the centurion sent this group of people out to meet Jesus, but then was standing back a little bit watching all this or sitting in his home and saying, oh, I can't, I can't stand to stay here. I've got to go. Okay, And so Matthew records it as the centurion going. Not sure. We're, we're not told that. But what we are told is that there was a delegation or there was a group of people that maybe the centurion went along with them, tagged along behind. Um, but what we do have is what we're told here in the Gospels. There was an authoritative sense that happened or whatever was going on. Okay, So we just don't want to think that there's some discrepancy in the text, but that just Matthew was writing from a different viewpoint. And this is why I said what I did in the beginning. Matthew's whole purpose is to point to Jesus' authority as the Messiah. So if you're writing from the power of the Spirit to a particular point, then some of the details are not as critical, which one of the other gospel writers picks up to make it more clear. Okay? So I hope that's satisfactory for your minds to understand uh, and we could do some ifs, ands, and buts about it. But at least what we know is that this was a real situation that God was showing to us to give us the power of his ability to heal and so we would know that he truly is the Messiah. Now, again, you could be thinking as, partly part, as part of this that the centurion wasn't going because he was just too proud. Well, again, that's not what Matthew says. Matthew says in verse 8, 
Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now again, did he, whether he sent a message with them or whatever it was, he's talking about his heart here. And this becomes the important point. And Luke records the same thing in Luke 7, 6. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now the centurion could be thinking out of respect for this teacher, this man who is doing this miracle. Maybe he heard about the leper and that's how he knows about Jesus. We don't know. He's saying that a Jew can't come into my house because if a Jew came into my house, he would be defiled. And that was certainly true of the Jewish culture, the Jewish belief system. It even came from the law of Moses. But all of this really points to the man's heart, which is what the Lord wants us to see. Because that's what God wants us to see in our own selves. He wants us to look at our hearts. Which helps us a lot because it gives us a better glimpse of what's really going on. And what's really happening here. And why the Lord was willing to help him. Which is the same thing God is going to do for you and me. When our hearts are exposed to him will help us understand why or why not he will not help us. And I'll make that clear in just a minute. But let's keep going with this. Now, what we see is that Jesus saw in this man a great humility. And we know that because of what he says, what Matthew tells us uh, in this particular passage. Humility is a true mark of a true believer. Jesus had just preached on that. You remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, up on the hillside in Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who's he talking about? People who have come to the place of humility. They recognize they're nothing by themselves and they need God. And God says, here's how blessed they are. They will inherit the kingdom of God. The humble people of this life inherit the kingdom. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that you can just walk around saying, oh, I'm so humble, I'm so humble, I'm so humble, I'm so humble, I'm so humble. Look how humble I am. And God's going to give me the kingdom. No, that's not what that's about. No, we receive the kingdom out of the humility of our heart because we realize Jesus is our answer. Right? We have to still go through Jesus. Now, continuing on with the same line of thinking, we're not told why the centurion was so humble in either account. Or we're not, we're not told what caused him to obey him or to cause him to be this way at all. We can speculate a lot and say maybe it's because he heard about the Lord, as I mentioned a moment ago, and his healing power. I mean, the story of a leper being healed is not going to take long to get around, right? It is an amazing thing. Or maybe he was raised by some people in his location that had learned the ways of God. I mean, growing up in the region, it would be very difficult not to be influenced by the Hebrew culture. Maybe he was exposed somewhere along the line to the teachings of God, and that's how he came to believe in God. Whatever the reason, the Holy Spirit had certainly already worked in this man's heart to believe Jesus could help him, even though he was a Roman soldier. And again, that becomes important. God wants us to know that no matter who you are, God is willing to help no matter what your situation is. Now, going on, we also learn from Luke that this man was sensitive to the Jews. This is very interesting. Look with me again in Luke 7. Hold your place in Matthew. Look with me in Luke 7, verse 4. When they came to Jesus, according to Luke, this delegation of elders, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, saying to Jesus, 
This man is worthy, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Boy, that's a strange thing. And just a footnote, if you don't know, a synagogue was just the place that, like we, we worship here, it's a church, but the actual temple was in Jerusalem. And so people had a long ways to travel to Jerusalem. They couldn't do it on a regular basis, so they built synagogues. But their actual sacrifices had to be made once a year in Jerusalem. Whatever any of that means, the obvious point is the centurion was very different from other centurions. This was not the ruthless man that we often hear about. So somewhere along his life, he had changed. Maybe he took the role as a centurion because it would help him financially. I mean, centurions were paid more. Kind of like people who turn to the world to get what they think they need. A lot of people do that. They abandon the truth and just follow after whatever is going to fix their problem. They don't see God fulfilling it quickly enough or don't believe that he can do it, and so they look to the world and they do it. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But if nothing else, we do know that God was using this man, and there had been a great change in his life. And he was using him to point people to Jesus, that Jesus is here for all people. He's here for everybody, even this powerful Roman soldier. It's interesting to me how the Lord leaves no gaps in his mercy. From the lowest of the lows, this leprous man, the one that culture would just totally abandon, push aside, make them live outside according to the law of God, but yet not a part of society anymore. To the highest in command, God had come for them to rescue all people who will surrender their hearts in humility to him. And so this story highlights the fact that also Jesus is not intimidated by anybody. In our day of racial tension, oh my goodness, where race is the subject of everything anymore, and it has been throughout the centuries, but now it's so elevated again in our nation where you can't go anywhere or do anything without some racially divisive thing of some subject. I think if nothing we see this morning is that not only has Jesus come for us individually, but he's come to prove to us that racial issues are divisive and they're of the enemy. In fact, there could be nothing further from the Lord's heart than to create a racial divide. Jesus came for all people. But listen carefully. That doesn't mean that he came for all who will just say they want to be a part of him or sort of believe in him, but that he came for all who will humble themselves and truly follow him as Lord and Master. That's quite different. And we could spend the balance of the message on just that subject. Jesus must be Lord and Master. He is God and he is the one we are to live in obedience to. So out of his humility then and sensitivity to God's people, at least according to what Luke tells us, this centurion now sends friends to meet Jesus, which again would be officially like the centurion going if we take that posture. And as Jesus comes closer, notice back in Matthew now, go back to Matthew chapter 8, verse 8 and 9. Matthew writes this. He says, just say the word, this is a centurion, and my servant will be healed. Verse 9, for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my slave do this, and he does it. Now, to really get a grasp on what is happening right there. We need to understand from the earliest days, the earliest days of the Hebrew life, the Hebrews had been taught the Pentateuch. That's the first five books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, excuse me, not 
Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, That's what they had. That's what God had given to them. And so everything was hinged on the Pentateuch, the first five books. That was their foundation for everything that they believed. I mean, it was their very life to them. They would write the law on the doorpost. You remember, you've seen pictures of this. We've seen it in the Old Testament. They would carry the phylacteries, their forehead and their arms of the law of God, giving them the instructions of what they were to do, which was this in Deuteronomy 6. You shall teach them. This is from Moses as he received the law from God. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, talking about the laws, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. They were even ready to put the Lord himself to death for what they thought were violations of his word. That's how serious they were about the word of the Lord. But they had forgotten the most fundamental, or at least one of the most fundamental truths about God. And that came also from the Pentateuch, but the first book, way back in Genesis, you remember it, that God is able to simply speak life into existence. Nobody else can do that. But way back in Genesis, you see that very, very clearly, that God, who makes something out of nothing, of which Paul would even remind the Roman church of, that he is able to speak, and it happens. Just a word of his mouth, a thought from God, and it, does, it happens the way that God would say it would be. Now, we also have to understand that whatever the Holy Spirit has done in this man's life, the, the Lord saw in this man a greater faith than he had even seen in Israel. Because Israel, who was supposed to believe everything that they said they believed and held to, were not believing in who Jesus was. And so this man absolutely did believe that he was God, or else he wouldn't have said, you just speak it and it will happen. He believed more than the Jewish people of that particular situation believed. I can't say all, but certainly of those that Jesus was dealing with at the time. And the Lord rewarded him for his faith. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him. Now just picture this in your mind, this crowd of people following Jesus as he has made this incredible uh, message come alive by healing the leper. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Nobody in Israel has such faith. I want you to be a Jew just for a minute again, okay? Imagine yourself a Jew. There's more that we learn about what it means to be a Jew. Well, I guess before we get to that, let me cover something else here. Because there's something else we learn about this man, and that comes from verse 6. If you back up to verse 6 for a minute, the word servant. The word servant. Now, if you're just reading this, you're going to think nothing of this unless you actually do a word study, which is what you would commonly do here, between the two uses of the word in Matthew and Luke. Now, this may sound a little more technical and detailed than you want to get into, but it really brings the point alive as you see this. Matthew uses a Greek word, which is the word for a child or a youth, okay? A child or a youth, speaking of the servant. But Luke uses just a common word uh, doulos for servant is a common word in everyday use for the servant okay so now interestingly if you just think about this for a minute we see a a distinction between what Matthew is saying about this person who is the servant Matthew says in his wording that there is a this was a child or a or some young person that was the servant of this centurion 
which would also make them a doulos. So there's no discrepancy between the two accounts. So don't think that, just like we were talking about before. In a very common everyday usage, this would be what he would be referred to. But for some reason, Matthew decides to use a word that would be more descriptive of who this servant is, which even gives us a clearer understanding, specifically that he was young and evidently someone that this centurion had great affection for. You can understand if we're speculating here, and that's what I'm doing. I want you to understand that I'm not speaking this out of this text of Scripture. This is my opinion at this point, that this servant was possibly this centurion's son. Possibly. I already said in the beginning that a centurion would often take a concubine, right? That's why I went through that. Perhaps the reason this centurion loved this servant was not only because he had been changed, which really is the point, but also perhaps that this man or this servant was even a child of his. But even if that wasn't the case, and again, I'm totally speculating, this centurion was a man who was very concerned about his servant, which again makes a very abnormal situation for a Roman centurion. And the reason is, is because any normal slave or to any normal Roman centurion, a slave was just considered property. Let me read you something. This comes out of a commentary that I was reading. This writer says, the, Greek, the great Greek philosopher Aristotle said, there could be no friendship and no justice toward inanimate things, not even toward a horse, an ox, or a slave. Really? An inanimate object? Because master and slave were considered to have nothing in common. A slave, he said, is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. The Roman law expert Gaius wrote that it was universally accepted that the master possessed the power of life and death over his slave. Still another Roman writer, Varro, maintained that the only difference between a slave, a beast, and a cart was that the slave talked. Cato the elder advised those in economic difficulty to look over their livestock and hold a sale. They should sell their worn-out oxen, their blemished cattle, sheep, wool, and hides, their old wagons and tools, their old and sickly slaves, and whatever else was superfluous. That's the thinking of the people in that day. It's a very sinful, very demonic kind of thinking. But that wasn't the case with this centurion. He was evidently a very different man. To him, this person, this slave rather, was a person. And not only that but a person whom he loved. Now, when Jesus heard the centurion's heart, he made a startling revelation to the listening Jews. Listen in verse 11 and 12. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now again, to get the impact of what Jesus is teaching here, we have to be a Jew for a second. And that is, this is what I was saying earlier. To a Jew, not only was the law of God the premier thing that they would pay attention to, but to a Jew personally, they believed that salvation was in the bag. I mean, just because you were born Jew meant you were directly going to be in the kingdom of God when you died. That was the belief system. I mean, God had already given you the kingdom or the key to the kingdom. 
In fact, in one apocryphal book, that's a book that was written but doesn't believe to be authoritative, they did hold to this, though, in the second book of Baruch, which says of the Jews that they would all be at the heavenly feast eating together the behemoth, the elephant, the leviathan, or the whale, that's what is believed to be, symbolizing the unlimited blessings of God. And one of the most appealing things about the feast is it would be totally free from Gentiles. Okay, so now we're seeing into the hearts of the people of the day, but we're also seeing into the hearts of the people who were Jewish. And so Jesus turns to them and he says, you see this guy right here? He has far greater faith than any of you. And I'll tell you, just because you're Jewish, and I'm paraphrasing here these verses, just because you're Jew by blood does not mean you're going to get a direct entrance into the kingdom. (gasps) What? What are you saying? That's right. And you and I would be standing there and we'd say, yeah, that's right. Listen to him. Not me, but Jesus. Because what he was really saying is, entrance into the kingdom is by what? It's through the heart, right? It's through belief in who Christ is, which is what he's teaching. It's not just because of your blood. It has nothing to do with who you are, where you came from. It has nothing to do that God promised the Hebrew people that they were his chosen vessels, in fact, the Apostle Paul would say the same thing to the church in Rome. Not, all of, not everybody who's of Israel is of Israel. And they would argue with him and they would argue with Jesus and they would say to Jesus in John 14, I think it is, hey, Abraham is our father. And Jesus would say, if Abraham was your father, you would believe in me because I know Abraham. And Abraham certainly knows me. And it certainly was true. God was the father of the Jews. But because they rejected the Messiah, they proved that they were not of God spiritually. Which is why Jesus says, again, to gain access to the Father, you must come through the Son. That's John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the startling statement that people really struggle with, even in our day. No one comes to the Father but how? Through me. Nobody. So the Lord's point is, just because a person is a Jew doesn't give them any more right to the kingdom than a non-Jew. And you and I are eternally grateful for that, aren't we? That that's not the qualifier. That you don't have to be of some bloodline. You don't have to be of some society. You don't have to be of some culture. You don't have to have been from the right side of the tracks or the right side of the river. You didn't have to go to the right high school. Or the right college. You didn't have to have the right job. You don't have to have the certain amount of money. No. God takes all who will come to him when they open their heart and they trust him by faith. And so I think it's a real message for us to hear. It's an alarming statement. Only only to find out as a Jew that you are damned to eternal destruction if you don't Accept who Christ is. The place where you thought your enemies would be. To the Jew, they thought only their enemies would be in hell. But now Jesus is turning around and he's saying, Hey, you see this guy who's your enemy? He's going to be there before you are. If you don't repent. And you don't turn your heart to what God wants it to be. And that entrance into the kingdom comes from humbling yourself. Saying, Lord, I need you. I need you. 
I see that you are God and I need you. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior to pay the debt of my sin. And now Jesus affirms all of this, that Israel had missed this, but this man got this when he says in verse 11, I say to you that many will come. And that's the verse that we just read. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 13, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Why was he healed? Because of one thing. Because of this man's faith. Because of his faith. Not anything else. That was the point the Lord was trying to make here. I am God. I can do this. But it's going to be your faith that will enact my work. Now, I don't want us to get off center too far because some people will say, oh, the reason things aren't happening in your life is because you just don't have enough faith. Well, that may be true to some extent. As we're studying in our Wednesday night study on suffering, sometimes we suffer through the things that we do because God is doing other things in our life. He's growing us in other ways. So don't leave here thinking that, oh, the reason this didn't happen or that didn't happen is because I just don't have enough faith. Some people teach that and they put you in a box. That's not true. God is sovereign and God does what God does. But yes, we are to live by faith, but we're never to assume that we are supposed to have some greater measure of faith and God will respond to that because we're a little bit better in our faith than the next guy. No, it's not about that. No, faith comes as a result of what God tells us and we just simply open our heart to let God do what God is going to do. And we could go down that trail for a long time and I could show you those things, but just suffice it to say, this is what the scripture teaches. So, Again, the point is, those who are going to be in the kingdom will be everyone, everyone, everyone who humbles themselves and turns their life over to the Lord. Paul would say the same thing to the churches in Galatia. You know this very familiar passage, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God. How, Paul? Through faith in Christ Jesus. There it is. You want to be a son of God? You have faith in Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You took on His nature, His Spirit. Not that you became God, but you took on His saving power to have the Spirit of God living in you. Notice this. I want to clarify something here. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. That would be very pointed in this culture, wouldn't it? There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The point of the passage is there's only one race of people. That's the human race. There are no distinctions of race in God's economy. There are nationalities, but there's no distinction of race. And all who trust in Christ in their hearts will be forgiven of their sin debt that they owe to God and they will be saved and they will be welcomed into, into the kingdom, which is what Jesus just preached in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Who are the gentle? The meek, those who like the centurion even, who are strong in their authority, but in their hearts they are very humble before God. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be blessed by God. Okay, now, just a, a passing thought here I want to clarify because I think this is so important in our culture today. This passage in Galatians 3, verse 28, where Paul says, there is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Uh, please understand, that is not a proof text for the gay community. It is not a text that says, you see there, God has done away with gender status. 
And so all people are free to be however God has made them. That is not what God is saying. God is saying just what I said a second ago. There is no distinction among men and women. It doesn't matter whether you're a male or a female. It doesn't matter because that's what culture had done. We'll see that in just a second again. They had created these status situations. And God is saying, forget that. All who open their heart to me will be allowed into the kingdom. He's not arguing for or against some kind of particular movement. Okay? In our culture today, it's very important that you understand that because over and over and over again, we're being sold the lie that this is how God made me. No, God didn't make us that way. We are sinners by nature and we need to be rescued from it. All right, now, very, very quickly, let's finish this up. I want to just cover this for the, for the sake of our time, very, very simply, a passed over person. Same kind of situation, verses 14 through 17. When Jesus came to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in a bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. Now, from these verses, we learn a couple things. One is Peter was married. Evidently, you don't have a mother-in-law if you're not married, right? I mean, you can if you want to, but um, it's not going to be legal. Seems like no big deal, but what makes it a big deal, this whole, partic- this whole situation in these verses, what makes this a big deal is everything we've already said, but not only was Jesus showing he's God and compassionate towards Peter as a new disciple, but how Jesus valued women. This is another big issue. How much Jesus valued women. Because in Jesus' day, women were treated just one step away from a slave. And we know that because one commentator writes this about the day that the first thing many male Jews did every morning was to pray, Lord, I thank thee that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. That was the thinking among the culture of the men in the Jewish belief system. That was not from God, but that's what their sinfulness had developed. And so Jesus comes now, who is God himself, tender to all people, and obliterates that thinking. And he comes into Peter's house and he heals his mother-in-law of which Matthew says she got up immediately and she served them. And you saw that if you watch in The Chosen, you saw what, that, what went on there. So again, not only was that a miracle, but this would be a huge message to the self-righteous Jews who would have missed Jesus' point, which is, again, a person's race, their social status, their gender makes no difference. God will accept them. What he's looking for is the heart, the inward part. That's why the leper was healed, to show his authority, but also to show that he was a man who the community had forgotten. The centurion's servant was healed. The woman was healed. Again, not because of their sin or who they were, but because all people have value to God and the heart that God looks for. Okay, So in all these things, let me just close this with this. I think there are several things that we learned from this. One was written by a man named David Dixon who wrote a commentary on this particular section in Matthew. He says, even though many reject Jesus, he still holds out the scepter of peace to those who will receive him. I love that. Listen, how many times have you thought, God, why did you spare anybody? Did he have to? No. How many times have you thought back to Genesis when Eve first disobeyed God that he didn't just wipe out the entire thing? God had a plan. How many times in our lives have we disobeyed God, gone against God, 
And God still offers us peace. Even though many have rejected him, and God, just as a result of the rejectors, could easily wipe away the earth, could he not? But God is merciful to those of us who look to him to save us. Here's the second thing. God will not disappoint. What we ask for God, of God to do, he will do for us, as long as we ask with the right heart. And James makes that clear. He says, listen, you're not getting what you, you asked for because your heart is wrong. You need to ask with the right heart. And I've already covered a lot of that. Thirdly, he loves his creation. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Some people would say, oh, God doesn't care. You know, there's those deists out there, and you don't hear much about that anymore. But God, look at the world. How could your God care about it? Well, we have a book telling us that God does care. And your examples and testimonies of how God has loved his creation. So there's nothing further from the truth. One commentator said he created a race of beings out of which he would love and redeem all of them who would love him in return. It's precious. Just a couple more thoughts. He's aware and sees the pain of people and wants to make a difference in their life. God is not unaware of what you're going through. God knows the tragedies that you've experienced. God was there. You say, well, why didn't he fix it? I can't answer that for God. But what I can say is that there is a home waiting for us that's far better than anything that we have in this life. Amen? And Jesus said, hey, listen, while you're stuck here, I'll be in your heart. I'll send the Spirit to comfort you. I'll give you everything that you need to make it in this life. What I want you to do is trust me because there's coming a day, if you will trust me, that you'll be free from this body and you'll be in an eternal kingdom where you'll never experience pain again. Fifthly, he is moved to compassion by the effects of sin. God looks upon our world and he responds out of compassion. Listen, do not think for a second that God is not with us on this planet. Do you know how quickly this world would turn upside down if the Holy Spirit were removed from this world? Do you not know in the midst of all that we are struggling with that it is because of the power of God to restrain the evil forces at work that we survive at all? That's why we survive, because God in his mercy has granted to us the ability to take our next breath. He's compassionate towards us. Six, he has no desire to turn away from anybody who wants his love. Listen, anybody who wants the love of Christ and to turn them their hearts over are welcome. Doesn't matter what life's been like, even in the midst of everything I just talked about, about there is no gender distinction, God will say, yes, that's true, but if you found yourself in this kind of lifestyle, it's wrong, it's sin, but I'm here ready for you to come out of it, and I'll meet you there. And that's just one example. And finally, seven, he who is and who was and is willing to go to the dregs of the earth to rescue any soul who cries out to him, God will go to the lowest point of humanity to find a soul that will turn their hearts over to him. Listen, that might be you this morning. That might be you listening, watching. You may say, there's no way God could ever love me. How many times I've heard that? Church would fall down if I walked into the building, right? No. God will go to the lowest point to rescue the heart that needs him, who just is willing to surrender to him. Now, That's a very simple 
somewhat detailed explanation of certain parts. But the reality is God loves us, doesn't he? He's merciful to us. And he's given his life so that we might know that. So today is Communion Sunday. So you, you got a little cup when you came in. And so let's just turn our hearts there to the reminder that the Lord gave himself for us to prove to us that the debt was paid. That we're free in him. So take the little cup there and on the bottom you'll see a little plastic thing that has a little cracker in it. Just go ahead and open that. And let me read the verses that we always read from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writing this now as he received from the Lord this instruction that Jesus also did with the disciples on the night of Passover. The Lord Jesus in that night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. God gave his body in death for you and me. So in remembrance of what he has done, he asked us to take part in that through the eating of this little cracker. So if you'll go ahead and do that. It's just a symbolic reminder, just a refresher to never forget the grace and the mercy of the Lord to come and to give him his life for us. And we're to be thankful for it. When Jesus had given thanks. Thank you, Father. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the symbolic reminder of the blood of Christ that was shed for you and me on the cross. And so drink it now as a way to remind yourself of his sacrifice for you. His blood paid the debt of your sin and my sin. And we are free forever in Christ. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Aren't you thankful that there's coming a day where the Lord's coming back? He's coming back. I hope you never forget that. Hope that in everything that you do this week coming, you're going to remember in all that you hear and all that you see, the Lord's coming back one day. And he's going to restore everything to its rightful place. That's an act of faith. Father, we love you. And we thank you for honoring us when you don't have to. Lord, you are so honoring to us that even in the midst of our sin, that you opened our eyes and opened our hearts, that we might see you as Lord and Master. There's nothing about our hearts that would do that without you. And so, Lord, we honor you this morning because you have honored us. And we ask, Lord, that as we leave this place, that you would help us to always remember in every conversation that goes awry or every situation that goes in some direction we don't want it to go, that we will remember that this life is temporary, that we're leaving, our bodies are showing signs of that. And so, Lord... um, We just trust you and look forward to the day where we will be with you in eternity. Now, until that time comes, Lord, may each one of us be faithful to serve you in the very location that you've put us in. And so we'll be careful to praise you in all that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Praise the Lord, everyone. Go your way and serve him faithfully. Amen.